This week on Crime World... There was a Republican police from 1920. I mean, the IRA was effectively trying to run an underground government. And actually, there was a crime wave. 1919-1920, there's a wave of bank robberies, post office robberies, robberies of individuals, robberies of pubs in Dublin and in rural areas as well. So the IRA tried to actually clamp down on that. They, on occasion, solving bank robberies and giving the money back to the banks. Now, I'm Nicola Talent, and you can listen to my podcast, Crime World, wherever you get your podcasts. Remember, you can stay up to date on the latest news with the Irish Independent WhatsApp channel. If I said, okay, over the next 12, 18, 24 months, you are going to have shots fired into your house, be shot yourself and be severely assaulted, that your family are going to be threatened and intimidated. I would never have got into it, but having got into it, I cannot walk away from it because it is, it is a, it's a job that must be done. Veronica Gearn, a groundbreaking journalist who was determined to take on Ireland's growing criminal empires in a way that the state wasn't. As the scene of the shooting here at Clondalkin is being cleared, the huge Garda manhunt for Veronica Gearn's killers is continuing. It's been 25 years since the mother of one was shot dead on the Nace Road as a result of her exposés in the Sunday Independent. That day in June when Veronica was murdered was probably one of the most difficult in our lives because we were trying to deal with the murder of a colleague and also with one of the biggest international stories of our generation. Details of the gang who wanted Veronica Gearn dead are well known, and yet there is only one person behind bars for her murder. John Gilligan got away with Veronica's murder for one reason. He used fear and intimidation from his prison cell to prevent vital witnesses giving evidence against him in court. That's how he beat the rap. I'm Kevin Doyle, and you're listening to In Focus, the current affairs podcast from independent.ie. Today, I'll be talking to Paul Williams about how most of the men who set out to kill his friend have avoided justice. And Liam Collins recalls working alongside the journalist whose impact on Irish society has arguably been greater than any other. She phoned. Three minutes and 48 seconds after we spoke. She was dead. That was an emotional Bernie Gearn, Veronica's mother, talking to you, Paul Williams, um, about that day. And shortly after that phone call and after the gunshots had rung out, you were the first reporter at the scene. Yeah, I was. We were based in Turn you're in the Sunday World at the time, so it was the quickest way to get up there, uh, the shortest distance. But I remember... Um, going into automatic and, and arriving up there. And what I saw is basically that same iconic picture that you see we always use in the Indo, uh, the Irish Independent and the other papers about the scene of Veronica's murder where the car was there, the Red Calibre was parked there at the, at the lights of the Old Boot Road and Nace Road. There were cop cars parked sort of indiscriminately, just abandoned around the place and guards were there. One walked over to me what does stick out in my mind is the, is the expression on his face, and he was—he was—he was like he'd been at a funeral. He was coming forward to sort of commiserate, and he said, "I'm really sorry." And then I—I—I I, I, I saw her in the car. Nobody stopped me, and I think everybody was in a total state of shock. 
that memory, that image has stayed with me for 25 years and will never leave. And one of the funny things you think about, she was wearing the same suit she wore the last time her and I had been on television together on Brian Farrell's programme. Uh, and then there was this load of all kinds of emotions about, like, the first thing you thought about is, I was told by the people who murdered her that she was going to be murdered. You didn't believe them. And then there was the, the coward came out of me, I suppose, because I, I then suddenly realised, because this is real. We didn't ever, ever, even though Veronica had been shot in the leg, it, like Tony Hickey has said this, the man who led the investigation, you know, even though she'd been shot in the leg, even though there was all this stuff going around, nobody genuinely believed that anyone would step across that line. It was, it, it just was inconceivable. That was one of the main, that was the reason why it completely stunned and shocked the world. And of course, Veronica was, she was a mum, she was a, a wife, she was this great, colourful character. She was full of life and she was a mad a Man United fan and sports fan and she was a really courageous journalist. And all those ingredients, I think, added to the profound shock and tragedy that this was. And from there, obviously, it became a huge news story in Ireland, but also internationally. The idea that a journalist is killed in this way by criminals, it just was massive. When news spread that it was Veronica Guerin, in some mysterious way, it touched the Irish soul. People left flowers and cards at government buildings and at offices and factories around the country. There was a national moment of silence. Thousands of people attended the funeral, including the president and the prime minister. And the country wept when her six-year-old son, Cahill, kissed his mother's casket in a final goodbye. And that was part of it too, Paul, wasn't it? The fact that Veronica, yes, was a journalist, but first and foremost, she was a mother. And that interview you did with Bernie Gear, and you can hear the emotion. She had a six-year-old son. There was so much to her life, apart from her journalism. She was a big part. She was a very vivacious, uh, charismatic person. You could see how she was part of the dynamic. In fact, that's why it left such a... Like, the Gearn family, what they went through of that, and what Bernie... Bernie became, like, sort of a second mammy. She was a wonderful woman, a very courageous woman. She could see where she had passed on that tough gene to Veronica. And uh, she always put on a very, very brave face of it, on it. And as I say, was very, very courageous. But... It destroyed her life. And her son Cahill, obviously, Veronica's son Cahill was just six at the time. And I suppose, like any child dealing with something like this, it's it's kind of surreal. And he recalled in recent years when speaking to Brendan O'Connor what exactly it was like for him. You remember bits and pieces. Uh, you remember the mass. You remember seeing people. You, you really remember the emotion. Like you're standing there not knowing what's going on and everyone around you that... Your, your whole world around you is just bawling their eyes out. Fra family, friends, cousins, uncles, even my father, they're all upset and you really just don't know what's going on or why. Yeah. Liam Collins was a colleague of Veronica Gearns in the Sunday Independent newsroom at the time and he recalls that while she had a public profile, she had a very different personal side to her. Yeah, I think the, the public person was this uh, was the crime fighter the person who was doing these uh, stories for the Sunday Independent uh, telling the public what was going on in the underworld of drugs and uh, 
money laundering and all of those aspects that most of us knew very little about. Um, the private person was, she was a very gregarious um, mother of one child. She she loved company. She loved gossip. She loved uh, Manchester United and uh, that was her, and politics. Um, those were her real passions and um, on a Saturday you would frequently get a phone call from Old Trafford where she was watching Eric Cantona, who was her hero at the time. And in terms of, I suppose, her place in the Sunday Independent newsroom, she was bringing a different sort of journalism, something that the newspaper hadn't done before. Uh, Absolutely, yeah. She was a groundbreaking journalist in that she wanted to tell people what was really going on on the streets. So she didn't depend on spin doctors or PR people she went out and met community groups. She met Gardaí and she met the criminals. And she filtered it all through that kind of very um, astute uh, observ- observer that she was. And she tried to do what um, Angus Fanning wanted the paper to do, which was to bring the real story uh, to the public every Sunday. So take us, Liam, to that week or the period building up to when Veronica Gearn was attacked and killed. What was there any sense that something like this was brewing? Obviously, she had been attacked before, but, you know, it was an ordinary day effectively for Veronica Gearn and it was an ordinary day in the Sunday Independent. Yes. Um, Veronica didn't spend much time in the office. Her, her modus operandi was she was in her car, she was on her phone um, she was meeting people out there. The day itself was somewhat, I suppose, chaotic uh, because the Sunday Independent was suddenly the focus of a major international story so that everybody was trying to find out what happened. But for us, it was it was a very personal tragedy, but we also had to deal with it in a professional way. When any big story breaks in a newsroom, it tends to be pandemonium and it can be something like this will be all hands on deck. But it must have been very different to be trying to react as a journalist who has to cover the story, who has to bring it all together to create a front page for the reader. And then, I suppose, her work colleagues who were grieving um, and and perhaps shell-shocked by what had happened. I think so. I, I remember... Lisa Hand coming in, who was a colleague uh, and a friend of Veronica's. And I remember the cry of anguish, even 25 years later, when she was told what had happened. For the rest of us, I suppose, to be in journalism, you have to be a little bit hard-hearted. While we tried to deal with it on an emotional level, we were also trying to deal with the fallout, which was international and and national. We were trying to deal with journalists from all over the world and we were also trying then to put together a Sunday Independent that in some way would uh, commemorate a fallen colleague. It was pandemonium and it was... Everybody was working to try and uh, get through, just get through that terrible week. Paul, what 
type of people was Veronica mixing with in her work and what kind of work was she doing that perhaps was much more different to other journalists at the time? Well, she was she was going into uncharted waters in the sense that she she started doorstepping a lot of criminals and making contacts with them, particularly like John Trainer, who she nicknamed the coach, and he was a big part of all this conspiracy. Um, so she went to talk to them. And like the problem with criminals, you know, the rest of other crime journalists talk to cops, Sometimes it's better to get the balance between the both. And she was on her way to getting that balance around the time that she she, she was murdered because um, both sides will play the game and both sides will, like criminals are notorious for tittle-tattle and stuff like that. So, the, you know, trainer was probably giving her information about other criminals to try and piss them off or whatever. Um, so, But she was, this was totally different. She was profiling the lives, the, 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 lives, the lives of, and the livelihoods of some of these criminals. And she was trying to get inside the heads of these guys and trying to profile them. And then she, even when she had met them and she interviewed them in some cases, be it anonymously or whatever, she'd then go and write about them or even talk about them. A very, very cold individual. Um, uh, not at all warm, not endearing in any way. A man of very few words. And he's just a very cold looking individual. That person she was talking about there, we understand, was Jerry the Monk. Hutch, who, of course, wasn't in any way involved in ending Veronica's life. No, he wasn't. And in fact, when Veronica's house was shot at and when she was shot, the two times that those two incidents were purposely scheduled and designed to blame him because she had written stuff about him, Veronica had on both occasions. And Jerry Hutch then, I've always had great admiration for this part of what he did, not for the other stuff, because everybody knows he's so notorious now, the monk, but he actually cued to sign the Book of Condolences in the old independent house on Middle Abbey Street with the ordinary members of the public that, that went the whole length of the street in Middle Abbey Street. And he queued there to sign the Book of Condolences, didn't care who was looking at him. And he wanted to do that to express the feeling of what we call the old, what we used to call the ODC cohort, the ordinary decent criminal cohort, that he was sending out the message that he was quite prepared to go in publicly and to, 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 to make this gesture about Veronica because he completely disapproved of it. So not the monk. Who did Veronica cross that wanted her dead? Very simple. John Gilligan. Why? Veronica went and asked a question. That's what we do as journalists. And she asked the question that everybody should have been asking at the time of the state did. She went to him in September of 1995, nine months after she was shot the first time. And she asked him, he was, after building this magnificent multi-million pound world-class equestrian centre in the middle of the bog near Enfield. He had a luxury home built on it. Everybody was talking about him. We were doing bits about him at the time as well in the Sunday World. He had suddenly come into all this vast amount of wealth and nobody could explain why. He was still in the dole. She went out that day and she asked him in September um, of 1995, she says, where did you get the money? He attacked her, he beat her savagely, then he threatened her, he threatened to murder her, he threatened her on several occasions after that, on the phone, and he basically said he would sexually assault her son and all of that kind of stuff. Now, so basically she stood up and he was charged with assault. He was going to go to prison given his record. But if John Gilligan thought that by killing Veronica Guerin it would clear the way for him to get on with his business, he was very wrong. He is the man who single-handedly changed uh, the way law enforcement does its business, not only here, but across Europe. Um, as a direct consequence of Veronica's murder, um, the Criminal Assets Bureau was set up within a month, the most progressive, the most comprehensive set 
of anti-crime legislation was brought enacted within a f- within four weeks by a completely united Doyle, which is the court, as you know, is very unprecedented as well. Um, they brought that legislation, which basically dovetailed all the the legislative framework to complete to allow the police in a way that nobody else was doing in the world to go after and focus on the proceeds of crime. Because everybody suddenly realised this is all about the money. Veronica was murdered for money. Paul, it's been 25 years the one person behind bars for the murder of Veronica Guerin. That's correct. And th- th- there's a there's a story and a narrative behind that, but I'll give you the, the, the brief version. Brian Meehan was the only person convicted of Veronica's murder. He rode the motorbike on the day. Um, the man, his accomplice, the person who pulled the trigger and shot Veronica dead was a well-known, uh, notorious hitman. Very elderly guy, he was 57 at the time, Patrick Dutchie Holland. Uh, Dutchie Holland was released from custody, he got 20 years for drug trafficking, which was the way that the state ultimately caught these guys. And when he got out of prison, he ended up getting back to doing what he did best when that was involved in criminality. And he died where he belonged, in his bed, in a prison cell, in, in, a, in a UK prison. Um, the other people who were convicted, Paul Ward, a member of the gang, was convicted initially of the murder of Veronica, but was acquitted on appeal. Um, he's a, a free man ever since. Um, two, two other members of the gang were Peter Fatso Mitchell and Shea Ward, uh, Paul Ward's brother. They have been officially uh, wanted in relation to this, but there was never enough evidence to extradite them or charge them. They have left the, they left the jurisdiction at the time and haven't been seen since. John Trainer, who was a big part of all of this, um, just got away with, with, with murder, as some people would say, because he there was never enough evidence to pin it on him. He was the man, we know for a fact, gave the evidence or the information to the gang to tell him where Veronica was going to be that day because she had naively told him of, of her location. He has been living in the south of England ever since, um, where he was running a used car sales business. And then, of course, there was John Gilligan, the head honcho, who has been back in the news lots of times over the years. And yet... Everybody seems to know that he did it and know why he did it or at least ordered the the hit on Veronica Guerin, but he's never gone to jail for it. No, he hasn't. But a lot of people would say at the time, initially when he was convicted of drug trafficking, when he was in the special criminal court, he was charged with drug trafficking, possession of firearms or importing firearms and the murder of Veronica Guerin. The reason John Gilligan wasn't convicted was because while he was in prison, he ensured that two Remember, three members of the gang became what we call supergrasses and became uh, state witnesses in the very first uh, witness protection program in this country. And they gave evidence against the others. A girlfriend of his, a teenage girlfriend, she was an innocent kid, 19-year-old called Carol Rooney. She witnessed a lot of the stuff that went on, including him talking on the day, on the phone on the day that Veronica was being, was murdered. Um Another person was Martin Baltus. Martin Baltus was a crucial part of the whole business. He packed the gun, the murder weapon, and all the other weapons, and over 2,000 kilos of cannabis for Gilligan in Amsterdam. Those two people were got at and refused and were too terrified to give evidence. Thus, the only only case that was really against him that the court felt could convict him on was drug trafficking. He got 28 years. It was subsequently reduced to 20 years. Then he was released from custody in 2013. And as you say, he hasn't gone away, you know. He's uh, still out there. He's currently in front of uh, being investigated in Spain. He's on bail for running a, an organised criminal drug trafficking racket. That case should be coming up in the next six months to eight months or maybe a year. But I don't believe that the story of John Gilligan has gone away. I think Veronica's family have accepted that he's he's never going to go to jail for her killing. But at the same time, 
they know that the imprint she has left on Irish society has made life incredibly more difficult for criminals like him to do their dirty business. If I was to live with that hatred in my heart, I wouldn't be really living life at all. And I think my mother wouldn't be, wouldn't be at all pleased with that. My, if she thought my life was just solely revolved around her debt instead Being of her actual, of, exactly. Of my mother never wanted to be a victim. Yeah. Like the, everything she did was for the benefit, I said, sounds cheesy, but for the benefit of the Irish people or for the people of Dublin. You are listening to In Focus, the current affairs podcast from independent.ie, produced by Mary Carroll and sound designed by Dara Kelly. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. For more on this and other stories, visit independent.ie.